Hi, everyone, and welcome to our podcast at the Rectory. I'm Anne. I'm Katie. We're friends who at some point or another all lived in a tiny blue house in Cincinnati that we have affectionately named the Rectory. And together, we have filled it with... Memories. Long hours of PhD work. And a saggy three-legged couch we just can't seem to part with. I like that. Musical sting. Katie, you look like you just got back from some sort of party or movie premiere. What the heck? Why are you so pretty? It's annoying. (laughs) Well, it's a mix of two things. One is that I had my onboarding meeting at Xavier and because it's so close, I walked and it was so hot. And on my way home, the weather changed all of a sudden and I got in the door and went, oh my gosh, I have to get our garbage cans or they're going to wind up down the street. Emily and I went out to grab the garbage cans, just being blown. It was like the beginning of Wizard of Oz. And a garbage can lid flew up and hit me in the face and like sort of stunned me. Yeah. So this is why I look like I was just at a punk rock concert. Well, it's a look you should remember, like the side, (laughs) side sweet, sweet curly hair. Thank you. 10 out of 10 would approve. Not the smashed in the face thing. Are you quarantined? I am. I got COVID. Oh, Anne. Yep. But really mild case, nothing scary or anything, but just got tested like two days ago. So my, my quarantine period will be for the next few days. Is Kevin here? Yeah, Kevin I should voice? be here. If you guys can hear me. Yeah. All right. I can't believe that this, we actually got all of this to work. Um, and to happen. So thank you so much, Kevin, for problem solving that with us and being here. Yeah, nice to meet you guys too. Thank you for the invite. So Kevin McPartland is a PhD, your candidate now, right, Kevin, in the history department? Yes, I am a candidate. Oh my gosh. And this year you're the one of our Taft fellows as well, correct? Uh, last year, last year. So now I'm back in the classroom or to my keep. Oh, great. Great, great, great. So Kevin is has received many awards. He has been to many conferences. He is a candidate in the history department at the University of Cincinnati, and he specializes in American Civil War history and very specifically the construction of Confederate nationhood and identity. Kevin, I'm so excited that you're here, not only because you're a great person and interesting to listen to, but also because your work and I have I have a confession to make. Sometimes I, I like to make fun of the Civil War guys a little bit when I'm ta- speaking out of school. And <laughs> because you guys well, are we deserve so- it. Well, usually I'm saying it in context of the people in the history department who have like had the same interest since they were seven years old. It's always the Civil War guys. All the rest of us don't know what we're interested in until we get like two semesters into the PhD. But the Civil War guys, man, their bookshelf was stocked at age eight and a half. They know what's up. But your um, scholarship, I think, is really revealing and illuminating at the moment in American history that we're experiencing right now, um, especially with the divisiveness and the, the way people are looking at the American past in conflicting ways to talk about our own identity and who we should be now. 
So could you describe, I know I've just uh, tried to give language to what it is that interests you and what you describe, but could you tell us in your own words so that we have a real clear idea of what your passion is in your area of expertise? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And thank you again for the the great introduction. Um, So broadly, what I do is I, I try to look at the press and use the press as a lens to see how a national identity was crafted for the Confederacy during the Civil War. Um, and within that, I think that there's a really interesting lens to see how all of these vastly different Southern communities sort of were knitted together in, in this sort of journalistic web that allowed them to begin to identify with other Southerners across the South um, in a way that we can recognize as today something that we would call a, a really true nationalistic perspective or nationalism that allowed them to sort of cross the barriers between different regions, different states, and different types of communities. Um, And within that, I think that there's an interesting argument about how identity is constructed, especially Mm -hmm. during wartime, which is, of course, is a very stressful period in a nation's history. Yeah. For for the sake of accuracy, like how long do scholars say the Confederacy lasted and what are sort of the boundaries of that beginning and end? Yeah. So for for the political state, um, it, it certainly would last from South Carolina secedes on December 20th, 1860. A bunch of states follow that to not get into too many details. And then on February 4th, 1861 is when the Confederacy is sort of officially established as a real government. Um, They pass their provisional constitution. They elect provisional presidents. This is when they sort of meet and and form as a true political state trying to act in the world. And then that political state eventually dies sometime in April of 1865. Whether you think that's when Lee surrenders at Appomattox, which happens on April 9th, um, there's another surrender in North Carolina of a very large army that happens later in April. Jefferson Davis is captured in May, I think. Um, and then there's, of course, what we celebrate is Juneteenth, which is sort of the official end of the Confederacy's control of Texas, which you know takes a long time to get from Richmond to Texas. As far as the nation goes in sort of an ideological spectrum, that is more debatable among scholars. Um, what is Confederate identity? How does it start? And when does it end is something that is very much up in the air. So f- for my purposes, the way that I argue it is I argue that Confederate identity is actually an outgrowth of what we can think of as an antebellum, so pre-war Southern identity. It's this, this identity that was crafted probably from about the 1830s that sort of was based off of a regional chauvinism. So the belief that the South is better than the North. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's absolutely, it's all bound up in this, right? Um, there, there's a, a, yeah, you know, it's, it's, we can talk about how that applies to today, but so there's regional chauvinism that's framed almost, ex- well, certainly explicitly around the institution of slavery. The mm. 1830s is where we start to see the argument coming out of the South that slavery was not this aberration that the founders wanted to get rid of but couldn't figure it out, but rather that they thought slavery was a positive good, um, that it was good for both the master and the enslaved person in the relationship, which, of course, we know is nonsense, right? Um, But they they believed this, and they began to craft this identity that was structured around the South is better than the North, the South is different than the North, slavery is what makes us different. Mm -hmm. And eventually, when you get to 1860, you get to the point where they think that defending slavery is enough of a reason to begin to separate what they are already sort of viewing as a separate Southern nation into their own political identity, which would be the Confederacy. So I would argue that the Confederate identity is really this outgrowth of this long lasting and slow constructed Southern identity. 
And then scholars also talk about the lost cause, which is what we, I think, can summarize today as this idea that um, it's sort of the lies that have been told about the Civil War, which happened mm. over a long period of time um, that were developed that eventually get to the point where people say, oh, well, what do you mean the Civil War was about slavery? It wasn't about yeah. slavery. That's the lost cause talking, and which I think is sort of the, the key factor of it. Um, and for a lot of scholars, they see that as an extension of Confederate identity. It's reworking the history to make the Confederacy look better and to sort of keep the uh, quote unquote ideals of the revolution as they would see it alive, which, which is a longer stand. So it's, it's interesting that there is actually a debate about what, how, how do we bound this sort of identity? Is it, is it just political or is it a cultural and ideological thing as well? Yeah. And so from what, how you just described it, um, that like the South is, is better than the North and the thing that makes it unique is slavery. Um, and when, if you would talk to someone about that today, I hear over and over, no, 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 Confederate, you know, it's, it's a, a social cultural pride thing. It has nothing to do with slavery, like backing way away from, um, from that. And that's why we can, you know, fly the flags and things, but it doesn't have anything to do with slavery at all. So that's interesting that back then, you know, you could kind of purport that, yeah, slavery was central to this identity. And now we've kind of had to do the work to uh, navigate away from that because that's not great um, in order yeah. to support it. Yeah. Fascinating. Can I just say one thing, Kevin, because I'm interested to see what you would think of this. Um, yeah. Because uh, I just thought this was funny and, and like weird. So the trucker rally in um, Montreal or one of the many trucker rallies in Canada, several right. Confederate flags were flown. And I was like, but what? Like, that's, what? Canada, like, right. what? But if you right. talk about the Confederacy as this cultural thing that maybe, you know, the bounds of which are a little bit more flexible, it's an ideal or an ideology that supports certain things, then it tracks that, like, truckers in Canada would be flying the Confederate flag. It doesn't have anything to do with the historical potentially you know connection yeah no, i know th i think you're you're spot on i think that that has a lot to do with it like when they when they're flying that they're not thinking necessarily about uh you know jefferson davis and his debates with the libertarians within his own you know they're not thinking about any of that stuff right they're thinking about anti yeah yeah, yeah. I, I didn't come up with libertarians uh george rabel has a great book where he sort of defines uh the confederacy between nationalists and libertarians and how they viewed viewed government so i didn't just come up with that on my own that's Cite my source right there. There's your footnote. Um, <laughs> but, but you know, when they're, they're fine, they're thinking of it as sort of this anti-government sort of rebellious um, um, thing. They don't really think of it as, as the baggage that comes along with this, which, of course, you can't. You can't separate those symbols from their historical meaning. But people try to, uh, and they try to do that a lot, especially with things like the Confederacy. So, Kevin, in your, in your opinion, is Confederate national identity still alive today? That is a great question. Um, and I think I would, the, the true historian's answer, well, it's complicated, right? <laughs> I, I think the, the, the yeah. problem, not even the problem, the, the answer to that is the fact that, and this is something that tracks across time, and I think is actually very applicable to what we are, are talking about today, is this idea that identity, and especially a national identity, is founded on a, a sort of mythic past. Right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not the true history of something. It's an imagined ideal of something or a recreation of something. 
Um, so for instance, you know, the lost cause, right? This is a reimagining of, of the past that serves as the foundation for a present conception of oneself. Um, it's not the true history. It, it doesn't matter that it's the true history. It's fictive. It's, it's imagined. And that is something when we have an imagined past that people can unite around is something that can be good or can be very dangerous. I think that is Confederate identity alive today. I think in some aspects it really is, but it's not a Confederate identity that a Confederate in 1862 would have recognized. Instead, okay. it's a Confederate identity that's been crafted in the decades since the Civil War that is based off of this sort of shared imagining of the past that redefined the Confederacy, redefined its goals, and conceives of it in a different way than Confederates ever would have thought of themselves. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm so interested in this idea of um, mythic history making, because on the one hand, as also a historian, I'm very dedicated to accuracy and to this idea of, well, it's complicated and, you know, to evidence. But I also sort of like as a citizen of a republic, see some benefits to like a conscious myth making or acceptance. And I'm curious, like you did mention that there, there are maybe some positives or some benefits. Could you talk a little bit more about that? And maybe like, what, what do you think the ethical boundaries on national myth-making look like? Yeah, that's, that is another really good question. I, I think, so the dangers of it lie in what we, we can, I think, recognize in the debates about things like the 1776 Commission versus the 1619 Project, right? Right. On the right. one hand, you've got, uh, you know, the 1619 Project, which is a very good critical examination of the foundations of the American state and the American economy and the American sort of cultural sphere. And then you've got the 1776 Project, which is sort of the opposite, right? This is a non-critical factor that is sort of reproducing nationalistic myths about the founding fathers. Didn't you know they were all perfect sent from heaven above and that they never did anything wrong or had no contradictions? You know, all, all of those things like, I don't think that that's right. Um, right. And, and so those are sort of the, the two poles. But I think within that, so on the negative side, you've got this erasure of possibly, I think we could call the sins of the past, right? The founding fathers were not perfect men. Um, they were not anything that we would recognize as something that we would want to have in our society today, right? You know, I, I think that mm -hmm. we can rally around the fact that Jefferson or uh, Thomas Jefferson uh, being a rampant slaveholder who assaulted his, his enslaved women frequently is not a good thing. And it's important for us to recognize that. But if we can find a shared past that maybe goes over some of, of the details uh, that we can find as a way to actually progress forward, then that might be okay if we bend some of the ethical rules. So if we talk about things like the ideas about freedom and equality that we found fell far short of in 1776, let alone by 1860, let alone by 1900. Uh, but if we can take those ideals and think of them as this is something to strive for and to always reach for, then you have a sort of a new nationalistic myth that is not exactly true, right? You know, America not only falls short of its ideals, but it often takes steps backwards away from its ideals. But if we can think of ourselves as, you know, using MLK's line as, you know, the arc of history bending towards towards justice, then it, it serves as, as a, a map for how we would like to progress in the future. And of course, that's dangerous because mm -hmm. that is, of course, who gets to decide what is justice, who gets to decide what how history should bend. Um, it's, it's a very fraught topic, but it doesn't always have to be in sort of the chauvinistic nationalistic perspective that it often falls into. That's great. 
I'm pausing just in case. Sometimes I run over Anne. So I was pausing to see if she if she had a question or if I should move forward with mine. Big brain yeah, history energy, which we love. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna let I'm gonna let Katie. <laughs> okay. Well, Kevin, part of the reason that you came to mind as a um as a guest was that on January 6th or just after in 2021, you posted a really thoughtful, kind of ethically assertive post on Facebook uh, where you talked about what you saw going on there. And I I reached out and asked if um, you would make it shareable, if I could share it and credit you. And it got a lot of attention when I did that um, on my Facebook page. And it seemed to me that you had a very clear authoritative voice on observing what was happening that day, naming it and naming the roots of it um, to undercut both the, the the lies that were already happening about January 6th and the myth that it was um, that supporters were trying to weave it into. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, A, are you following the January 6th um, committee hearings now? And if so, do you have do you have thoughts on uh, some people have asked, what is the purpose of these? These aren't legal trials. Why are we doing this? So, so have you followed the hearings and do you see value in them? And if so, why or why not? Yeah, I, I do. I, I've been following them not super closely because it is dissertation writing time, which is just the nature right. of the beast, as you know. Um, but I have been following them because I do think that they are pretty important. If for no other reason, you know, I just spent a good, good couple of minutes talking about the idea of you can reimagine the past, right? Yeah. And you, you can't, when something like this happens, you don't want it to become another lost cause narrative, right? You don't want it to be reshaped by sort of the perpetrators of the wrong to suit a narrative that makes it seem, well, that wasn't that bad. Now, was it? Because it was that bad. It, It was explicitly that bad. It's something that we have never seen in American history. You know, this to take you the Civil War as an example, right? The South left before they assaulted the presidential election as illegal. They said it was immoral. They said that it was unethical. They said that it was an attack on the South by the North. They said a lot of things about it, but they never challenged that it wasn't a legal election. Um, wow. and, and so that is astounding uh, to me that we, we could have something like that happen in our, our current time. And then to challenge that to go so far as to assault the Capitol while they're certifying that election um, based off of the big lie is another thing that's just uh, astounded me on the day and astounds me to this day. And so I think that the the hearings are so important because it is a chance to truly write the first history of that day and to make sure mm-hmm. that the first history that is written is not one that is shaped by the side who committed the wrong. It's shaped by people passing a judgment on them that is not, that is condemnatory. That is not something that is saying, well, you know, this is just an expression of democracy because it's not an expression of democracy. It's, it's, it's the exact opposite. Right. Similarly to how we talk about, you know, was Robert E. Lee a patriot? No, he was a traitor. He violated his oath to the constitution. He violated his oath to the United States. He fought a war against them and then lost. That's, that's who Robert E. Lee was just because he believed in the principles that he was fighting for. doesn't make those principles right. And it doesn't give you a free pass. Wow. Silent clap for Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin, sometimes we have an open pulpit at my church. Do you think you want to come in and uh, pound on it for a Sunday? (laughs) Listen, I'll let you know. I'll let you know. 
Well, you know, it's so interesting about um, this current movement, the movement that resulted in um, the assault on the Capitol, because the the main or the central figure in this is a New Yorker, right? Donald Trump. He's not right. a Southerner. He's not. He just in no way. He's very culturally a Yankee. He's very culturally a New Yorker. But amongst the people that we saw um, on that assault, kind of uh, like what Anne also mentioned uh, in Canada, we saw the Confederate flag being flown in the halls of the Capitol building. And I'm really curious, do you see roots in the big lie of the 2020 election in in American Civil War? It seems like so far you've pointed out some very big deviations, the fact that the Confederacy never claimed that um, Abraham Lincoln's election was uh, illegal or invalid. Um, and some other things. Um, but I'm curious, do you see links there beyond the symbol of that, of those flags? Yeah, I think, I think it really does come out of the lost cause um, very explicitly because the lost cause reimagined the Confederacy in a whole slew of different ways. Um, that wasn't not, it's not that they just erased slavery. It's that they made the Confederacy a symbol of the resistance of especially the little guy against the big guy. One of the big lies of the of the lost cause is that, oh, the South only lost because they didn't have the numbers. The North overwhelmed them with their men and material. And it wasn't that the Southerners weren't brave enough or strong enough, that there just weren't enough of them. You know, this is mm-hmm. one of the big lies that just is not it's not it's not really true. I, certainly it's part of why the South lost the war, but it's not the whole reason why the South lost the war. You combine that sort of this little guy versus the big guy ethos. You combine it with the true sort of idea of the brave rallying for an ideal. I mean, it's called the lost cause, right? The cause was lost, but it wasn't uh, wrong is sort of the Mm. the tagline of some of this movement. And and I think that that same ethos applies so directly to what we can see as sort of these feelings of, um, I guess you could call it white repression. Uh, white grievance, I think, would be a better phrase yeah, of okay. of the the current right wing climate. Right, it's this this idea that despite what we can see, not just in the way that we can just look at society, but in the data and the statistics, that there is such a thing as white privilege, and that the world is not in fact stacked against middle class white men. There's a certain feeling that it is for these people, and mm-hmm. that is driving them in the similar way that people who rallied around the Confederate cause after it was lost felt this sense of grievance and of being wrong and of being oppressed, even though they were going through the motions of a Jim Crow America um, Mm. and really honestly reasserting Southern dominance within the South by 1876. So not even, you know, a decade and a little change after the war, the South was essentially as it was before the war, just without officially legal slavery. Um, And so I think that there's a, a real shared sense of wanting to be the victim in a system that you are not necessarily the victim in. And I think that that plays really well, as well as just that idea of rebelling against the powers that be. That, of course, comes from a flag of a rebellion. Yeah. Wow. Oh, my gosh. So much tracks, Kevin, with like conversations <laughs> I've had recently with a very conservative Christian members of my family who are just like so concerned about the movies coming out these days and the way culture is moving these days. And there's this real um, feeling of uh, persecution 
And there's this real kinship that they've been feeling um, with the kind of like Trump right wing kind of campaign about like we're part of a group of people being silenced. It's just like all these little like, I don't know, connect the dots are happening in my brain. And it's like so interesting to see people who I know aren't racist, but dang, are they aligning, you know, with like some of the stuff. And it's like, why are you doing this? That's why. Yeah. And I think that it's really interesting because much like nationalism can be, is often built off of a a fictive past identity itself is, is sort of, as we can understand it, it doesn't really matter the reality around you, right? We can show data, we can look at figures, we can talk to other people outside of it. What really matters is the perception Mm. of the world that you live in. And that's the, it's sort of the, the, the line, it's about your truth, right? right? And we can see that in the South before the Civil War, it's by any measure, uh, you know, the South had a very strong hold on the national government. They had defended and extended rights of slavery for a good decade before the Civil War, but they felt aggrieved. They felt attacked. They felt assaulted. Um, and, and it matters almost more not what was actually going on in the national government, not that Lincoln had no desire to attack slavery in the South. It mattered what the South believed, and that's what they acted on. I think that we see, to your point, that so much of the worried about the movies coming out today, feeling silent. Buddy, you're not getting silenced, I promise you. But because Mm -hmm. they feel that way, they begin to act on that because that is being inculcated into how they see themselves. And if they see themselves as oppressed, they are going to act as if they are oppressed despite the fact that we can recognize in very many real ways that they are not oppressed. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like that piece of pie kind of thing. Like just because someone else like is able to be represented on film um, these days, just because there's a wider range, doesn't mean that there isn't anything for you. It just means that we're sharing the pie. Now you used to have the whole pie, right. But like, right. Now we're just, we're, we're spreading a little bit and there's just this real big, um it's very like the people I was talking to I mean man they had tears in their eyes about the Buzz Lightyear film um and things like this and Mm -hmm. and I was like people are different from you and they live differently in the world and that's a good thing like why can't they exist in popular culture and be represented Uh, um it's like, well if it's not my way that I'm like super upset and concerned for society and I'm like dang that's a hard thing to lose I guess that's a, th- a hard thing to let go of. Absolutely. Kevin, th- I know that this gets maybe a little bit outside of the particular um, historical uh, period that, on which you focus, but I, I wonder if you can think through this with me a little bit. Um, looking at some of the things that are happening um, nationally with the, the mass shootings and um, with the recent overturning of Roe v. Wade, one thing that has occurred to me is I wonder if the if we would be different as a nation if we had achieved our independence uh, in a way that was not through a military victory. Like, what would our national culture and identity and problem solving be like if our founding fact was not that we left the British Empire through military victory. 
um, because I kind of see, and I think you used this a little bit, or at least the Confederate idea of um, the American Civil War is sort of being like a second rebellion. And I think that some people are certainly like this, the January 6th and insurrection uh, looked to the American Revolution for symbols and an example. Um, And sometimes I feel that impulse myself, especially around seeing the NRA can just send out thoughts and prayers to families in Uvalde while making money off of promoting that we all need an assault rifle. And that right now I'm just in the confessional booth. Um, (laughs) I wonder if... No, I think, think, yeah, I I, I think, I think I, I get what you're getting at. That's a really interesting thought experiment because the revolution is... You know, we talk about founding national myths. You know, that, this that's the centerpiece of so much of how we think of ourselves as Americans, as opposed to Canada, which sort of, you know, wandered into Commonwealth status and then all of a sudden they were their own country, you know? Right. You know, I, I just actually did a lecture on the revolution for my summer course. Um, okay. And I do a lot about the coming of the revolution and how I try to frame it as the very sarcastic side is like, oh, they were just trying to get away from taxes. But in reality, it was a very particular ideas about liberty and about government and about the Commonwealth and how that was supposed to function and how that was failing the colonists and how taxes were really a representation of larger grievances and larger fears. Um, Mm. And and so I think when you take that and then, yeah, you add on that idea of this military victory, especially the fictitious idea that the colonies were unified to resist the British juggernaut and that the war went well for us and that after it, there was this period of just true political, you know, genius and an explosion of, of mm. new doctrines, which in some cases is true. I mean, James Madison reworked how sovereignty could function in the world, in the Constitution. That's a, that's a big deal. But at the same mm. time, there was not unity, right? You know, we count Patrick Henry as give me liberty, give me death, except that he hated the Constitution. He was an anti-federalist. <laughs> he thought that it was tyranny. You know, <laughs> right. it's, not, it's not the same thing. And so, yeah, I think because we had that amazing victory, we can reimagine our past as this like triumphal military unity and glory and all that good stuff, which, yeah, I think informs a bit of our, our a bit of our own American chauvinism, right? No one else right. threw off the chains of the British empire, but we did. And, and yeah. And then it gives you all of these, these founders who become untouchable. Yeah. I struggle a little bit with this, even in like my own house, like I decorate and redecorate and there are like holidays and national holidays that I really treasure. And there are parts of them that I think are like factually true that I choose to celebrate. Like, I mean, let's take, I mean, we just had independence day. I have independence day decorations and I have like things with George Washington on them and, you know, and they sort of exist in my life and in my home and my identity at the same time that part of my brain like also registers this other information. But I suppose I'm also, I also worry in my own identity that I don't want to be the person who's constantly undercutting everybody's fun, right? Like I don't say, oh, right. you're celebrating Thanksgiving, blah, blah, you know, and just like be a total buzzkill. I love Thanksgiving. Um, and what I often say is we're not celebrating a wounded knee. We're celebrating a moment when things went right. But I, right. I also wonder if I have the privilege to do that because my story is the story of the people who lived and, and quite frankly, triumphed. I'm not, I'm not a member of the Pequot people whose story is very different. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that that's, that's, I also struggle with that because I love Thanksgiving and I just got back from a 4th of July barbecue where my uncle made just immaculate pulled pork. And <laughs> I, I also am just like, wow, this, ugh, I just taught about the, about the American Revolution and about, you know, by the end of the American Revolution or by the end of the Revolutionary Period, there were more people enslaved than there were at the start of the Revolutionary Period. You know, we reopened the African slave trade in South Carolina. There's very bad things that happened after the revolution that I am currently eating pulled pork about. Uh, It's a very weird place to be. I think that it also gets to the idea that, you know, there's a great book called Rescuing History from the Nation by a guy named Dwara. I'm probably just absolutely butchering his name. Uh, But he makes the argument that there's no such thing as a single identity, that everyone's identity is made up of a bunch of conflicting identities that sometimes rise to the surface and sometimes are suppressed, that it's, it's a constant struggle about who you are as a person, because are you, for, you know, as an American's perspective, are you a historian? Are you American? Are you an Ohioan? Are you a Cincinnatian? How do these identities conflict? Are you a Christian? Are you not a Christian? Um, all of these exist in one person and not in harmony, certainly. Uh, and I think that that, for a lot of us, gets at this, yeah, how do you feel pride in this nation at, in, on July 4th when you're really upset about many of the things that have just recently happened, let alone the, the longer past of, of the American, of the American state. Uh, I don't have an answer for that one. I just know I like pulled pork. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> I like that. There's, I like to sit right where we're, you guys have said, like, it's complicated. Like, I like to, we can stay in the complication, right? We don't have to, to land on that. And I know that Katie has said she can write like an America sermon, like some of the good, like true things about America and what America can do. Um, So, but Kevin, I wonder if you can do that. Like we're kind of sitting in that wrestling with some of, some of the hard things and some of the good things. But if we look to the future, what are some of those good things that can maybe move us forward in America? Yeah, I I, I really, I think that, you know, the, the founding ideals of the country certainly in practice have come up short quite often, but the idea that there are such things as inalienable rights, that you are guaranteed a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of, of happiness is a wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's something that we, we should and always should continue to strive for. I think part of that is recognizing the fact that we do fall short. You can't mm-hmm. ignore that we fall short. It's about recognizing that, addressing it, and try to move from it that, that I find, um, truly sort of the goal. And I, I think that I find civil rights as the thing that I look forward to the most, because every time that we come up against the struggle in the civil rights, it is so, so often the struggle to expand who the ideals of an inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness apply to. Mm. Um, and there's always pushback, right? Because like you referenced so accurately, I think that piece of the pie, Someone doesn't recognize that, in fact, they have been eating the whole pie and then no one else had any. And then they're really mad that they have to share some of the pie, even though they have plenty of pie for themselves. Now the struggle is to make sure that those failures can be rectified, not just for the current generation, because they should be rectified for the current generation. Uh, but, but for generations to come, so we don't have to think about the idea that like, oh, wow, the law does apply differently to different people. It shouldn't, right? And that's something that we need to work for. Um, in increasingly minute ways, let alone the big ones that we deal with now in terms of things like police violence. Um, It's got to go deeper. Um, And I think that we should always be striving to go deeper, to try to make the society the way that 
the founders didn't intend, right? They didn't intend for women uh, to have the vote, let alone for African-Americans to have the vote. But screw what they thought, right? Let's, <laughs> let's get farther and farther along to those ideals that we understand uh, now um, and how we can apply them. I think that that's, that's what will continue to push America in a direction that we can look back on and say like, wow, that was a step towards something better than we started with. I just want to slow clap for that moment where you were like, screw what the founders thought because they really <laughs> didn't think about women or minorities. And it's like, yeah, every time that's thrown at me, they're like, we just want to get back to our founding ideals. And I'm like, you realize there's like a huge population that is not included in that. Um, so thank you for, thank you for saying that, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I got you. Yeah. And this is referenced a lot with the second amendment, right? Like um, uh, when we have people destroying, utterly destroying the bodies of elementary school students so they can't even be identified by their parents with an assault rifle. Someone just says, well, the second amendment. And I've been thinking about, I, I can't remember where it is, but there's this um, rabbinical moment when Jesus is approached by other religious leaders and they're asking him about the Sabbath. And he ends up, and they're trying to like, you know, trap him in this complicated question, right? And he he says, the Sabbath was created for man. Man was not created for the Sabbath. And when I think about the Constitution, what I want to say is the citizenry doesn't exist to hold up the founders' original, you know, concept of every little tittle and jot of the Constitution. The Constitution exists to protect um, the citizenry. So if we need to yeah. do something to make that better, that's completely legitimate. Yeah. And I, I think that, uh, you know, Madison would agree with that, right? You know, the Constitution, as he designed it, placed sovereignty not in the president, not in uh, the way that was in England, where it's in, embodied in the parliament, uh, but the sovereignty was the people. The people dictate government. Government exists because of the people. Power within the American state exists because of the people and the whole people, not the people of each individual state in their own individual state, right? The American people broadly. And so, yeah, the, the, the point of that is that the people are the font of power and the right to govern within. It is granted to Congress. It is granted to the president, um, but, but it always belongs to the people. And so when the people say, hey, maybe we should change that, we probably shouldn't flip open the dusty old book and say, well, it says right here that I'm also the Second Amendment is so wildly misinterpreted. But that's that is a right. whole digression. I cannot get into now because I'm very angry. <laughs> I love having historians on the podcast. This is so fun. <laughs> <laughs> I, this has been a dynamite conversation. I want to ask Kevin, like as we kind of wind down a little bit, is there something that you would recommend that people read if they are truly lay people and would like to know about the kinds of things, this complicated history that you've been talking about? Can you recommend any authors or books or current thinkers that talk about these topics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the great starting point, which seems very intimidating when you pick it up because it's like 890 pages long. But uh, <laughs> I, bear with me. I, I know, I know. But it's James McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom. Um, that mm -hmm. is the go-to single volume history of the Civil War. It touches on just about everything, enough to keep you interested without drowning you in any of the really explicit details. Uh, you know, he, he's not going to be breaking down each regiment's movements at the Battle of Gettysburg and why they matter. Thank he's God. going to talk to you broadly about the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, so that's that's a really good place to start. Uh, if you're looking for a very, very slim book on why the Civil War was fought, uh, I have to recommend Charles Dew's Apostles of Disunion. 
which takes a look at yeah. uh, the Deep South states set, sent out secession uh, commissioners who were trying to go to convince the upper South states to secede. Um, and so they explicitly stated why they were seceding. And here's a hint. It was about slavery. Um, but that's a very, very good, very good introduction to, to, to sort of those issues. Well, Kevin, I know you have a lot going on. You're writing your dissertation. You are planning your wedding. All Ooh. kinds of good things. You have a doggy. Many, many demands on your time. I'm so grateful you made time for us. This was so outstanding. And I'm thinking right now of all the people I'm specifically going to punch in the ribs to make sure that they listen to this episode. Yeah. So this was fantastic. Yeah. No, thank you guys. I appreciate you having me.